It's the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, part 25 of our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled, Are You Thirsty? We're looking at the message Jesus gives a crowd in the middle of the temple on the high day of the Feast of Tabernacles, calling out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We're going to unpack this and see how it applies to our lives today. Hey, just a reminder, uh, beginning in September, September 2nd, we're going to be moving our services to 10 o'clock, so if you uh, come to our church on a regular basis, uh, show up earlier than normal. And this is at 525 East Boston. Hope to see you there on time. And even come early and hang out and have some coffee. Well, without further ado, let's head over to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Kevington. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, if, if you're, you're new to the church, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John since, uh, oh, I don't know, last December. And... By my calculations, let's see, how many chapters are there in John? Like uh, the Bible trivia, 21, 22, 22. So we're not even a third of the way through. Um, so here we are. Uh, today we're going to be in, the, in part 25 of the series. And uh, if you want to get caught up, there's all kinds of stuff online. You can go back and listen to it and uh, just saturate yourself in the book of John. How many of y'all like going through the Gospel of John like this? You find, I tell you, I, I've, I've always... I've, I've liked the Gospel of John, but it, it's so cool when you take your time and you get to see that, that it's not just a bunch of random information. It's, it's actually, there's a theme to it. There's, there's things that kind of build up. And when you can start paying attention to that, it's, it's really cool. So I'm, I've, I've really got a lot out of it myself. I don't care if you didn't or not, but I did. Um, so today we're going we're gonna to pick up at John chapter 7, verses 31. Many of the people from the crowd believed in Jesus. Uh, by, by the way, just a little note here. Jesus is in the middle of the f- Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It was one of the three main festivals that went on throughout the year. It's in the fall, and people had come from all over to Jerusalem. So uh, many people from that crowd believed in Jesus. When the Messiah comes, they were saying, Will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, this dude's doing a lot of signs. Maybe he's the Messiah. The Pharisees heard the crowd was full of this rumor about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. So Jesus said, I'm just with you for a little while, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, and you won't find me, and you can't come where I am. Where does he think he's going, said the Judeans to one another, if we won't be able to find him? He's not going off abroad among the Greeks, is he, to teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he says, you'll look for me and you won't find me, and where I am, you can't come? On the last day of the festival, the great final celebration, Jesus stood up and shouted, If anybody's thirsty, they should come to me and have a drink. Anyone who believes in me will have rivers of living water flowing out of their heart, just like the Bible says. He said this about the Spirit, which people who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit wasn't available yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm just going to say a quick word of prayer as we get into the teaching today. Lord, uh, open up our eyes to see you, Jesus, today. God, as we look into the word, let us have an encounter with the incarnate word, you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's an awful lot of stuff in the scriptures about 
thirst. If you read throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, the psalmist says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, my, I'm thirsty for you like that, God. Uh, we, we see that, that, that thirst is a word that comes up here. It's the second time in the Gospel of John that we've bumped into the word thirst. Uh, the first time was with a Samaritan woman. But I, I just have a feeling that most of us don't hear these words the way people in that part of the world would have heard them. Does anybody what it's like, knows, know what it's like to go thirsty in Louisiana? <laughs> I, I grew up out in West Texas, uh, Midland, and the annual rainfall was something like 9 to 11 inches in a year. Uh, my, when I first moved to Hammond, I was here for about three months, and there was one day where it rained 12 inches in six hours. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of one of the worst droughts this country has ever seen, worst on record, and... Yet it's raining this morning. It was raining yesterday morning. I played a gig out at this uh, Columbia Street landing on Friday night, and we were praying for the rain to stop. It's, it's the reverse of the prayers that everybody else is praying for. We don't know what it's like to be thirsty down here. We have more than enough water. But if you go to, to, to Israel, it's, it's a different thing entirely. I was amazed going over there. I went, I went over there uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, for a tour of the Holy Land, and it, it was an incredible time. But one of the things that, that I, I just hadn't thought of was how pervasive aqueducts were and, and cisterns. And when I say cisterns, I, uh, the cisterns I've seen you know, down here are kind of things up on roofs. These things are, are, are things that are dug into the rock, and they collect the water. And I went to this one place on the, on the Mediterranean called Caesarea Maritima that uh, Herod the Great built over 2,000 years ago. And it, it's, it was built in the style of Roman and Greek cities, had a, an amphitheater and stuff, but it had these aqueducts outside the city that went for miles from, from the mountains. And it, it, it just makes our modern architecture kind of put to shame that this stuff is still standing some 2,000 years later. But water was a big deal. And, and I went down to, uh, by the Dead Sea, there's this community called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Which, by the way... The only reason the Dead Sea Scrolls were found was because they were in a desert. Uh, there was nothing, no mold, no fungus, no bacteria, nothing that would degrade anything. And so these, these scrolls lasted for 2,000 years, and they were, they were discovered a few decades ago. And, but even at Qumran, which is like the most desolate place you could see on Earth. I mean, it's, it's right next to the Dead Sea. You see water everywhere, but none of it's drinkable. It's, it's just filled with salt and minerals. But at Qumran... They probably don't even get five inches of rain a year. It's, it's desolate. But they had these aqueducts there, and, and they would empty into these big cisterns. And so when, when we hear the words thirst, we're like, yeah, you know, I go for a jog. I'm a little thirsty. But, but water, it, for this group of people, water was, was a life and death thing. If you didn't plan, if you didn't uh, have a strategy of how you were going to have water, you were going to die. Civilizations, that was their biggest thing that they, they fought over. It's water rights. How you can, how you can get everybody, uh, your, your crops watered, your people water. And so, when Jesus speaks, is anyone thirsty? It was a much more water conscious culture than ours. And when I read the words, like the psalmist says, in a dry and weary land, where I've been, I, it reminds me of West Texas. <laughs> uh, because when you're standing out in Qumran, even when you're standing in Jerusalem, when you're in the Middle East, they tell you you've got to drink you know, a pint of water an hour just to stay hydrated because the water just comes out of your skin. It's just you will dry up like a sponge sitting on the counter. 
So Jesus, in the middle of this festival, he calls out, Is anybody thirsty? Does anybody want to drink? Because I got rivers of living water to offer to you. We live over in Abita Springs. Does anybody live in Abita Springs? Mandabita? We need to get we need to start a church in Abita Springs. It'd be a little bit easier for me to get to. But uh, Abita Springs, the word Abita, I'm told, means life. Life springs. And it's, it's an artesian spring, a, a well that just flows up naturally from the water. It's what you would call living waters. When you hear that term living waters, it just means it's, it's flowing. It's running water. It's fresh. Now, imagine drinking out of one of these cisterns in the Middle, you know, in the middle East that, where you collected water about nine months ago. <laughs> and the water might be a little stale. It might might help you survive, but Jesus is saying, come to me and drink of what I have, and it will become living waters, an artesian well that will spring up to eternal life. Now, I can't help when I read this passage, but see the the parallel that we have between this one and John chapter 4. Now, John chapter 4, if we rewind, it it seems like it's, it's crazy that it it was back in January when we were in John chapter 4. But Penny did a message on, on the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you're not familiar with that story, Jesus is going through Samaria. And he comes out to this well in the middle of the day. It's not a time where most people would be out at the well getting water. And he sees this Samaritan woman. He says, can I have a drink? She's gathering water from the well. And she's like, uh, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus said, look, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And I would give you fresh living waters that would spring up to eternal life. And so she says, give me some of that. And it's interesting in that passage because it's a completely different kind of context than, than what we see today. In that, in, in that story, in John chapter 4, it was about Jesus reconciling outsiders you may be here this morning, you may feel like, I, I talk to people all the time, it's like, man, I, I, I'd love to show up at your church, but I'm afraid if I come to your church, the roof's going to cave in. <laughs> that may be you today. You may be thinking like, I feel like I'm so far away from God and religion and Jesus, I don't, I don't think God would want anything to do with me. Well, that was a Samaritan woman. I mean, what, what is so scandalous about the story is that, that Jesus even talks to her. Because Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. Gentiles were, there was this, this racism between them. You know, Jews did, they walked on the other side of the street. They stayed away from you know, Samaritans. Samaritans were the butt of their jokes. They were, they were considered uh, impure, half-breed people. And Jesus, he didn't get hung up on that. He walks up to her. But the other thing is that she's a woman, he's a man. The, the Jewish rabbis, still to this day, a rabbi won't typically talk to a, a female, even a Jewish female. They try to keep, you know, I saw the other day, Orthodox Jews came out with some new glasses that are blurry. They, it's, this is a true story. Blurry. They're, they're blurry glasses. You can only see like a few feet in front of you and just so they won't be tempted to look at women. I hope they don't drive with those on. <laughs> But Jesus doesn't get hung up on that. He, he breaks through the barrier of, of, of gender, of sex. But not only that, when Jesus is talking to her, he kind of reads her mail. He says, uh, go get your husband. She says, oh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you said right. You, you've actually had five relationships that weren't your husband. And the guy you're shacking with, up with right now, not your husband either. And she goes, oh, I see you're a prophet. 
So here's this woman. She's the, she's the wrong racial group. She, she's a woman. And she's living in an immoral lifestyle. She's not living according to Jewish morality. And Jesus doesn't get hung up on any of that. He says, look, you're, you're, you're thirsty. But you're, you're looking to the wrong things to fill your thirst. Why don't you drink what I have? And you're not going to be thirsty anymore. And so we see that, and I think many in the, the church would be, oh yeah, that's Jesus ex- extending his love to, to outsiders, to sinners. Yes, sinners need Jesus. But what's interesting in today's passage is that Jesus isn't just talking to the outsiders, the ones on the outskirts. Now we see Jesus, he's, he's talking to the most religious crowd that there was. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the people who had took their religion seriously enough to, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this festival. And on the height of the the festival, Jesus calls out to them. If there was anybody who shouldn't be thirsty, it should be these people, right? I mean, they're they're around God. They're they're observant. And Jesus says, basically, you know everything that these festivals are pointing to? It's me. Religion is okay. But religion, as Paul would kind of say, I'm paraphrasing Paul a little bit. Paul says, religion, you know, the Old Testament was a tutor to bring you to Christ. Jesus is in effect saying, look, religion, it, it, it's supposed to make you thirsty. It's like eating potato chips. It, it, it develops a thirst within you that can't be satisfied until you get to the thing that it's pointing to. And Jesus stands up on the, the, the ultimate day of the festival and he says, is anybody thirsty? You know what would have been happening on that day where Jesus called out to everybody? It was the, it was the high point of the festival. It was the day where they would, they would actually pour water and wine around the altar in the temple. And Jesus gets up in the midst of that and says, is anybody thirsty? See, religion, it makes you thirsty, but it never quenches your thirst. <laughs> It makes you thirsty, but it never leads you to the real deal. Jesus is standing up saying, I am the point of all these things. Everything that the Jewish people have been observing under the old covenant, it's, it's pointing to me, and here I am to quench your thirst. Are you ready for a drink? It's very reminiscent of what Isaiah 55 says. Verse 1 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread, your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Jesus is... is, is, is really kind of quoting Isaiah here. He's, he's referring to these passages from the prophetic books that, that, that were God saying, I'm ultimately going to be the one who fulfills your thirst. Because religion can never do, do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've tried fulfilling your thirst in religion. Anybody tried doing that before? Oh, I have. There's lots of people. Christians, non-Christians, that have tried to, to fulfill their thirst... In religion, I think one of the most famous cases was a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Anybody heard of him? A lot of he's the the guy who started what became, I guess, the Lutheran Church. I guess he started that. Okay. It's kind of weird that you start a church and you name it after yourself, though. I guess thinking about it. Okay. Uh, but but Martin Luther, he was a guy who was sincere about following God. He. He quit the family business. He goes after God. He's, he becomes a monk. And from what I read about Martin Luther, he probably wasn't very fun to hang out with. He was so serious. 
I mean, he was going to pray more than anybody else. He was going to read his Bible more than anybody else. He was going to read it in Greek and Hebrew more than anybody else. If there was any kind of spiritual activity, Martin Luther was going to do it. But finally, after years and years of, of trying to be right with God, trying to impress God, trying to do this thing and, and earn God's favor, he finally just was just sick of it. And he came to a passage written by Paul, and I believe the Holy Spirit breathed on that passage that day. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. That little, that little passage, he probably read it a, a, a hundreds of times before that, but for some reason the Holy Spirit breathed on it that morning. You ever, you ever read something and all of a sudden it's just like, wait a second, it, it steps off the page at you? That's what happened to Martin Luther. All of a sudden he realized, wait a second, <laughs> I can't earn this thing. I'm trying to earn God's favor, but I can't. I'm totally powerless to do it. But I don't have to. That's the good news. It's the gift of God. I've been trying to earn something that I could never earn, and it's already the free gift of Christ. And so at that point, Martin Luther began to receive this gift and not only that, to proclaim it. And what started from that point on wasn't just a mere renewal service or revival. It became a reformation that changed the course of history, even to this day. Martin Luther reminds me a lot of, of Paul. Last year, we, we went through the book of Philippians. and Philippians 3, Paul talks about his spiritual resume. He says this in Philippians 3, verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, according to the, the Old Testament law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's saying, look, if there's any reason in the flesh to, to boast about something, I can boast. I was born into the right people group. I wasn't a Gentile who converted to be a Jew. I was a Jew by birth. Not only that, things that I had no control over, like my parents circumcised me, they did it right. So I've got that. As for obeying the law, I became a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a teacher of Pharisees. I was the leader. I was the one who trained them. And not only that, he says, I wasn't content just to sit around with other Pharisees talking theology. I wanted to put feet to my beliefs. So I went out there and in my zeal, I persecuted the church. Paul would have probably been what we would consider a religious fundamentalist or a terrorist nowadays. He was rounding people up, having them killed for his religion. And Paul goes on to say this in, in verse 7. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the, for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Now, this word that the NIV translates as garbage is, is from a Greek word that we learned when we were going through Philippians. Y'all remember scubalon? Everybody say that with me. Scubalon. If you're looking for something to name your kid, don't do that one, okay? <laughs> scubalon is translated garbage in the NIV, but you know what the actual translation is? It's crap. Actually, if we want to get technical and, and actually translate it into the common vernacular, it would be a word that I'd probably get in trouble for saying up here on a Sunday morning. The equivalent of crap, though. <laughs> Paul is saying, my whole resume, everything that I thought was just so special about me, everything I thought made me right with God, it's a bunch of crap that's just fit to be flushed down the toilet. That's it. Compared to knowing Jesus. See, Paul, he was in this place that was, it must have been a crazy experience because he thought he was fighting for God by persecuting the church, by doing all this activity. He thought he was God's man of the hour. And on the way to, per, to persecute the church, he's riding down the road of Damascus, he bumps into Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Paul, actually his name was Saul at the time. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh my gosh. Imagine what that would be like to think that you've been helping God. <laughs> to think that everything in your life up to that point, you've, you've been so religious and fervent and sincere, but to find out you were sincerely wrong. I thought I was fighting for God. I found out I'm fighting God. But you know what was so amazing about Paul? Even when, when Paul was an enemy of Christ, even when Paul was persecuting God by persecuting his people, Jesus, when he bumps into him, he doesn't cast Paul away. He doesn't say, oh, I can't stand you. You're my enemy. What does Jesus do? He welcomes him in. Is it any wonder why Paul writes about grace more than anybody in the whole New Testament, the whole Bible? Every, every book that Paul starts off, it starts off with grace and peace to you. Actually, the words that inspired Martin Luther, they were written by Paul. It's by grace that you've been saved. Because Paul knew, if, if I can get in on this good stuff, as somebody who hunted people down and had them killed, thinking I was doing a God, God a favor, if I can get in, anybody can get in. That's the grace of God. That's good news, huh? Don't shout me down all at once now. That's good news. That's exceedingly good news. You know, when I look at Paul and uh, Martin Luther, I can identify with them myself. Because uh, when I, you know, I grew up in a, in, in a Christian home, but most of my teenage years I was running from God. And finally, when in my late, you know, towards the end of being about 20 years old, I finally... Uh, surrender to, to to Christ as an adult, and um, and I hit the ground running. Uh, I actually ended up going to a Bible college. My mom was at, at a Bible college up in Dallas, so she got me in. Even though, like on my my uh, application, like they don't normally let people in that it, if they haven't been in church. You know, I I they were starting school up. She said, "You want to go to Christ for the Nations?" I was like, "Sure, we'll fill this out." They're like denied. <laughs> Because they ask questions like, have you ever done drugs? Yeah. When? Uh, last Tuesday. <laughs> but I'm on the straight and narrow now, I promise. Uh, 
<laughs> they, they, they normally said you had to be in church for a few months, but uh, you know, they, they let me in under a probationary thing that if I screwed up, me and my mom would both get kicked out of Bible college. But I jumped in like crazy. So I went from being in, in, in the you know, just drug culture to all of a sudden I'm at a Bible college, squeaky clean. Everybody wore ties. I had to wear one too. And uh, I got, got enough of that for the, those few months that I was there, and I haven't worn one again. Um, but... I immediately jumped into a very performance-based Christianity. I figured if, if I was working this hard to, to be away from God, then I would work for God with all my heart. I brought in these mentalities, though, from the world, the, the work ethic of the world. I just got to work really hard at being a good Christian. So if people were going to read the Bible, I was going to read the Bible more. If people were going to pray, I was going to be praying more. If people were going to serve at church, I was going to serve more. And I was, I was highly disciplined. I was studying, memorizing the Bible, praying, really involved in church. But I get a couple of years into it, and I was done. I was done, because I feel like Martin Luther. Like I just, I'm working really hard at this, and, and I don't feel like I'm alive on the inside. You ever felt that way before? I mean, I was sincere. I wanted God. But something was off, and I got up one Sunday morning, and I told God, I said, look, if something doesn't happen this morning, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm probably going to be out in a bar tonight. I, I've just got to, because this is no fun. I'm, I'm just, I'm dying here. And um, that morning I went to church, and I've shared this story before, so if you've heard it, that's too bad. I got the microphone. Um, <laughs> but I went up to church, and, and, and I, I just prayed a prayer of desperation. I was like, God, I, I can't do this anymore. And I felt like God was saying, I was wondering when you were going to figure that out. <laughs> I went up for prayer at the end of the service as we, we, we asked people up here for prayer. And I went up for prayer and had several people pray really crazy prayers and nothing happened. But somebody came up and prayed a very quiet, simple, gentle prayer. I don't even know what they prayed. But all of a sudden, the power of God just descended on me. I was filled with the Holy Spirit in just a powerful way. And I ended up laying down on the floor for like 20 minutes. <laughs> And God just began to reveal things to me in my heart and like kind of do surgery. And when I got up, I was a different person. I felt like, like I encountered the grace of God for the first time in my life. I'd been a Christian, been very sincere, but I'd been trying to earn God's favor. And if you've been in a performance-based Christianity, it's, it's a drag. Because when you're doing good, God loves me. He pushed like on my Facebook page. <laughs> Like, <laughs> he likes me because <laughs> I read the Bible so much and I worship so much. But, but, but inevitably, that only lasts a few days. And then you screw up. And for me, it was like, oh, I better stay away from God. <laughs> I, I would actually do that. I mean, it's, it, it sounds silly to me now, but I would actually, like, I would blow it. And so I'd be like, oh, I better stay away from God for a few days. Let him cool off. Uh, just give him a little space. And... Uh, <laughs> I was afraid to come near him. My whole, my whole thing was based on my efforts, the best that I could do. And the best that I could do just wasn't good enough. Let me let you in on one little secret. Actually, the few times that I, I thought I was doing pretty good for a, an extended, sustained period of time, really, I was so filled with pride. <laughs> and and I, was, I would make other people miserable. I was so hard on myself that I would look at other people and I'm like, Man, they're not... They're not on fire for God enough. They're not praying enough. They're, they're not reading. The, they need to read their Bible like me. They need to be as hard on themselves as I am on myself. 
I was miserable, and I was, I was spreading that. When I encountered God that day, things changed, or began to change. All of a sudden, I began to realize that, just like Martin Luther had, that it's by grace that I'm saved. It's a gift. It is an absolute gift. I can, I can try to work for it, but that'd be, you know, like, be like on Christmas morning, just doing projects around the house, <laughs> instead of just opening the gift and enjoying it. And I think God got through to me that day. He's like, why don't you just accept this gift? But you know the thing? I hear a lot of people scared of the word grace. You ever heard people that are scared of the word grace? Oh, if you talk about grace, people are just going to, they're just going to start, you know, getting licentious and just doing whatever, you know, just making it up. Oh, God loves me. That's not been my experience. When you truly know that God accepts you and loves you, it changes you. When you truly know that God accepts me just as I am, that's the power of the gospel. And that begins to change you. It's like drinking water in a barren land. It begins to change you from the inside out. It quenches your thirst. Religion can't quench your thirst. It can just make you thirsty. See, that day when I came to church desperate for God, you know what? I was thirsty. I didn't want to run away from God. I wanted God. I was just thirsty because I'd been trying to do it myself for so long. These words of Jesus from this passage, they're directed at a very religious crowd. It's the church crowd. He's talked to outsiders and in, in, in other parts of this gospel, but he's talking to the religious crowd today. So I want to say something. I think there's a few barriers for us as people of faith that can very easily get into our life and, 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 and get in the way of us receiving the living waters of Christ. And I want to talk about three of them. First is cultural Christianity. I bump into people all the time that... Uh, especially when I was on the South Shore. I, I didn't grow up in a, in a real strong Catholic area, so I'm kind of new to Catholicism, but it, it's, it's very much a part of the culture down here. I see even if you're not Catholic, it's, it's, it's a part of the culture. But I, I bump into a lot of people who were raised in Catholic families, and, and they'll show up, you know, uh, Easter and Christmas. Maybe they'll go to confession once in a while. Maybe uh, uh, on the Fridays where you're supposed to eat, Seafood, they'll do that. That's 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 pretty lame. Like, okay, I'll eat fried shrimp. Um, <laughs> I'll suffer. <laughs> yes, I'll eat more soft shell crabs. And um, but I know a lot of people who they do that, but they're just going through the motions. Why? Because it's just what you're expected to do. It's just what you do. It's, it's what you've been raised in. I got a friend who works among Muslim peoples, and he says that, that there's a lot of cultural Muslims. They're not fanatics or anything. They're just, mama was a Muslim, daddy was a Muslim, my grandparents was a Muslim. There's things that they just do because they picked them up culturally. I like, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I think it's good to, to raise kids up in a Christian home. But at some point, all of our kids are going to have to encounter God for themselves. And i got to tell you, when I was doing campus ministry, the ones that, that had the biggest problem in college were not the people who converted to Christ in college. It was the ones who were raised in church. 
They get to a university, all of a sudden they got pushed back against their faith. They're living in a world that is either hostile to faith or ambivalent. And all of a sudden, many of them just went off the deep end. The ones that made it through and retained their faith, they had to encounter God for themselves. Cultural Christianity, if that's where you're at this morning, if you're just here because that's what you do on Sunday morning, you know, we got kids now, we got to start going to church because that's what you do when you have kids. You go to church, you know, because these kids need to learn about God. <laughs> that's cultural Christianity. That, that's not going to give you life. The second one is performance-based Christianity, which I already kind of talked about, so I won't hit on that. The last one is superstitious Christianity. I find that this is kind of epidemic in our culture. That, that Christianity just all becomes about, if I do this, I'm going to get God's blessing. If I do this, He's going to be mad at me. And it's like, I, I've just got to, I've got to say these right things, quote this thing, say this thing. And, and if I do that, then I'm going to get God's favor. I've bumped into people sometimes that are obviously struggling with illness, terminal illness. And when you're like, what's going on? Oh, nothing. Doing great. Praise God. Bless God. I'm, I'm perfectly all right. Amen. Dude, you, you got pneumonia. No, bless God. I don't receive pneumonia. Well, that, that's superstition. You know, when, when Jesus comes up to people like the guy laying i mean he he's okay he knows their condition already <laughs> sometimes we have to just say god this is how i am this is the reality <laughs> now god can do something with our reality Amen. and that's faith too okay <laughs> i believe that i can confess reality to god and that's not anti-faith god i'm a mess i'm sick i'm broken <laughs> i'm a wreck here but I believe in you, and I believe you're the one who can, can help me out here. That's not anti-faith. That's, that is faith. When we get into to superstitious Christianity, cultural Christianity, performance Christianity, you know what it does? It substitutes for a relationship with God. It substitutes for, for knowing God. And I can tell you, in Jesus' day, when he got up to deliver that message, there were people in that crowd who, who, who probably struggled with all three of these things and more. And Jesus says, are you thirsty? Are you, are, you, are you tired enough of these things? Are you ready for the real deal? Come to me and drink. You know, the ladies have been going through Abba's Child on uh, Wednesday nights, which, by the way, Abba's Child, it's a great book, even if you're not a woman. It's not geared towards women. It's written by a guy. But Brennan Manning, uh, in, in the book, I, I'm the token guy that shows up in, uh, on Wednesday nights. The token, but I don't lose my man card. Uh, <laughs> but in, in this latest chapter from Abba's Child, he quotes one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. And I love what Henry Nouwen says. He says, Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. Their leadership must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus. And they need to find there the source for their words. 
advice and guidance. Dealing with burning issues easily leads to divisiveness because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. You ever notice that? <laughs> you can get passionate about something and all of a sudden your identity's caught up in your side of the issue. But this is, I love what he says here. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible, but not relativistic. Convinced without being rigid. Willing to confront without being offensive. Gentle and forgiving without being soft. And true witnesses without being manipulative. I love that. Have you ever been around somebody like that before? And I get around some people sometimes. It's like you get around them. There can be controversy swirling all around. And they're just peaceful. And you try to get them to, to side with you on an issue. Well, what do you think about this? And they're like, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe you ought to look at it this way. They're not shaken. They're not stirred. And when they, even when they are passionate about something, it's not in a way that shuts other people down by their passion in it. You ever been around people that just beat you up into their opinion on things like, oh, you got to do it this way. You got to believe this. And you got to, and you walk away going, man, I'm, I'm, I feel beat up. A person that knows God loves them at the core of their being, a person who is drinking from the waters of Jesus, the waters of life, when they come into a situation, they're not shaken. They can confront things in love. They can witness about Jesus without being manipulative or, or trying to put guilt on you. They come from another place. Who wants to be like that? I do. Because you know what? Every time I get around somebody who's like that, it gives me life. Some of that stuff just kind of spills out on me. And I walk away feeling like I've encountered Christ. Because I have. So this morning, I just want to close by kind of getting quiet before the Lord. Why don't you just, let's just, let's just sit here for a moment with these words. Get quiet. Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, open our eyes to see us as, as, as we are, God. Holy Spirit, I just pray that right now you would, you would just convict us where maybe we've slipped up into a performance-based Christianity trying to, trying to earn your favor. Maybe, God, where we're just going through the motions because it's just the thing to do. God, maybe where we have lost our intimacy with you in, in exchange for superstition, Lord, we, we ask you would reveal our hearts right now, convict us, lead us to Jesus right now. Thank you, Lord. This morning, if, if you just... 
we just continue to keep our eyes closed. If, if you're uh, if you're in here this morning, you just say, "Yeah, I am thirsty. I am one of those people in that group, and I, I just feel like whatever I'm doing, it's it's there's no life in it right now, and I, I want to return to the Lord today. Just raise up your hand. See you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. I just want us to, to just uh, invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts right now. You know, the good news at the end of this passage is that uh, Jesus says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, but it had not been given yet. So even the people that heard him that day didn't get to really quench their thirst. The, the good news is that God offers his spirit to us today.